Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, please subscribe to our show either at iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Today's show will be about adoption dissolutions or failed adoptions. How common are they, How to? what are their causes, and how to prevent them. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both adoption and infertility, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through the Faring Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can visit their website at heartbeatprogram.com, or you can talk to your doctor, either your oncologist or your reproductive endocrinologist if you have one. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption or infertility, as well as the upcoming week's blog or show topic. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org. That's on the top left-hand side of the page. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. And a recent blog you might enjoy was on devotions for families adopting hurt kids. Uh, These devotions were written by a therapist, an attachment therapist, and they're just really beautiful. I recommend that you go, and we've uh, excerpt one uh, on the blog. You can find it and join in on the discussion at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, including All Blessings International. They're an adoption agency in Missouri and Kentucky, working with families throughout the U.S., placing children from Congo, Haiti, Hong Kong, Latvia, Taiwan, and El Salvador. They also have a domestic infant program, and they place children from the U.S. foster care. We also have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work in families in 49 states and are fully licensed in California, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, and New York. As you just heard, Creating a Family is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors as well. So if you are looking for an adoption agency or an adoption attorney or adoption therapist um, or any any host of uh, adoption or infertility service providers, please make your first stop the Creating a Family Databases, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, number of years in operation, just a a lot of things that we think are important when making this choice. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today's Creating a Family show, we'll be talking about adoption disruptions, dissolutions, 
how common they are, what are the causes, and how to prevent them. Uh, not all adoptions, even with the best of intentions, are, are going to make it. Some adoptions do fail. Recent reports by the NBC News, the Today Show, and Reuters focused on the devastating outcomes to some kids, of some kids and families. But left unanswered was how often adoptions fail and what type of adoptions are most at risk uh, for failure and what to do to prevent them. Uh, these dissolutions. Our guest today to try to answer some of these questions will be Dr. Trudy Fessinger. She is a professor at the Silver School of Social Work at New York University and one of the leading researchers on adoption, including adoption dissolutions. We also have Stephen Hayes. He is an adoption attorney who has handled over 3,500 adoption cases, including many adoption dissolutions. And he is also a fellow and past vice president of the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys. And we also have Regina Kupecki. She is a therapist specializing in adoption and attachment, and she is co-author of Adopting the Hurt Child and Parenting the Hurt Child. Welcome, Dr. Trudy Festinger, Steve Hayes, and Regina Kupecki to Creating a Family. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with all the media coverage last week on failed adoptions and what they called rehoming, although it's a term I don't particularly like, um, or but by meaning that they use that meaning parents going outside of child protective services or adoption agencies to find new homes for children that they feel they can no longer parent, you know, it's certainly raised many questions. It's raised as many questions as it's answered, quite frankly. Chief, in my mind, is how common are adoption dissolutions? So first, I think we need to start by getting our terminology straight, and it's it's confusing. We've got a couple of different terms that we're throwing about, adoption disruptions, adoption dissolutions, uh, and we also, uh, uh, the term uh, failed adoptions is used. Adoption dissolutions means the failure of adoption before it has been finalized, before the adoption. Nope, nope, that's oh, I said it wrong. Poo. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Scratch what I just said, everybody. Adoption disruption <laughs> is the failure of an adoption prior to it being finalized. Now, in foster care of the child, you will have had the child placed and will be living with you during a period of time before finalization. If it disrupts, disrupts fails, let's say, at that period of time, it is called an adoption disruption. In international adoptions, often this period of time is long before you even have uh, custody of the child because the adoption is finalized in the country. By the time you bring the child home, the child is legally yours, the adoption has been legally finalized, and anything that fails, if adoption fails at that point, it is called a dissolution. Um, and uh, it's complicated because most people... Uh, refer to any failure of an adoption as an adoption disruption, when in fact what they really mean more oftentimes is an adoption dissolution. And and to further complicate things, the term fail adoption, failed adoption isn't much better for reasons beyond not, not just sounding good. It also is, refers to those situations where a domestic newborn adoption, where the expectant mom uh, changes her mind after she has already been matched, or in international adoption, somehow a referral not coming through, but bef long before it's just you have a referral, but for some reason it doesn't come through. So on today's show, we're going to be speaking primarily about adoption dissolutions, that is, adoptions that fail after the legal adoption proceedings have been completed, and that's the term we're going to try to use, although clearly I may be challenged in that way. Uh, I'm going to be, you guys will not struggle, I realize that, uh, our, our esteemed guest, but your not-so-esteemed host may struggle with this. 
mainly because people all the time refer to it online where we provide most of our resources as a disruption. So I'm going to shift it into my head and be very careful here. We're going to start talking about uh, some of the basics, some of the basic facts, which I feel like in the uh, uh, multitude of discussions that have been taking on uh, place online, it, it drove me slightly bananas that there have been so few facts. And, and partly that's for a good reason because we sometimes don't have the facts we want to have. But one of the things we're going to do today is try to figure out what we do know and what we don't know about how common uh, adoptions dissolve. Uh, Dr. Festiger, Trudy, how common are adoption dissolutions? Okay, let me just start out by saying that adoption dissolution, one of the problems is that it is very difficult to measure and get an accurate count. There are no national data on dissolutions. They're especially difficult to obtain because at the time of legal adoption, a child's records may be closed, first and last names may change, and other identifying information uh, are modified. And therefore, it's extremely difficult to get an accurate count. Uh, a colleague of mine and I, we looked at uh, over 200,000 children uh, who exited in fiscal year the 2005, which was the latest we could get. And out of that group, let's say, uh, a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion were dissolutions. Uh, I also, just to bring something up to date, recently the Bureau of Consular Affairs uh, in this Department of State uh, indicated that there were 71 cases of disruptions and dissolutions. Again, they're not, they got them all mixed up. And that was of 76 kids who were adopted from other countries and entered state custody as a result. I've given the total number of uh, adoptions from other countries, the percentage there is less than 1%, uh, considerably less than 1%. There have been others who have taken a look at it, usually just to, in order not to throw a lot of numbers at you. Uh, I would say, you know, the GAO reported about 1%. Uh, public adoptions that were dissolutions. Uh, I had another study that also was very low. In other words, it happens very rarely. Uh, when Trudy, it does, wait, Trudy, wait a second. Let me stop you a second because I had a, a, a couple of questions. Um, for the your, the study you referred to where you looked at uh, 200, I think you said 200,000 children, was that children exiting foster care? You said exiting, and I'm assuming you meant exiting yes, foster care. Yes, exiting foster care, and we picked out of that the group that had been placed into care for the first time and had been adopted, and out of those adoptions, we could see how many had come back into care and weren't going back to their adoptive families. It's a complicated gotcha. thing. Somebody can, uh, you know, the reference is in in the child welfare uh, 
whatever it's child, called. Yeah, child the, information. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll there are that. articles based on it that will make it very clear because it's <laughs> these are complicated numbers. They but are. Anyway, you never it, was, said... it was a tiny, tiny percent. Okay, so but less than 1% type of thing, or 1%, something along yeah, those lines. Yeah, right, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, the, on the Bureau of Consular Affairs, the, what the State Department, the State That's Department data. country adoptions only. Right. Now, I was confused about that, because that, that obviously that's State Department, and that is, now, uh, although intercountry adoptions, international adoptions are certainly down, we, we certainly have more than, you know, 71 uh, a year, let's say. I, no, I no there were 8,000, there were over oh. 8,000, close to 8,700 right, intercountry right. adoptions. Okay. And out of that, there were 71 cases. Gotcha. Okay, and, and out how of would the eighty-seven hundred, so that's gotcha. less than one percent. Gotcha. I understand. And that, that. Now that includes makes both disruptions and dissolutions. So I don't know which is which. Well, and that, quite frankly, when I I published a a um, a blog, uh, I guess it was last week, uh, on how common were uh, adoption dissolutions, and it was trying to find the trying to piece out that data was nerve-wracking, uh, infuriatingly so, because so much of them, the terminology, so much of the... Now, mind you, I am I don't have it's access to the journal. It's very mixed up, right. It they is. Misused disruption, and they, uh, they glommed oh, they the two them together. together. Yeah, yeah that, that was the part. I was like... Happens all the time, right. What uh, would even get... Even in the professional journals, you see people talking about yes. disruptions when they've included dissolutions uh, in there, and it's very hard to disentangle, you know, aside right. from the problem of being able even to count dissolutions, which is very difficult. Right. And it's part of the problem in trying to, to understand, trying to get your head around a number here or a percentage is part of the problem because after an adopt the way the US law works is after a child is adopted a child becomes the legal child of mm -hmm. a family and and is no longer in any system of which to track exactly it. exactly yeah. that's why yeah. we, we were trying to find a way around that but that is the problem how do you find such kids uh right. impact, that's very very difficult they, they're yeah. no longer a part of a system. Uh, they change names or may change names. So the Social Security number can change. So it's very, very difficult to track dissolutions. And, and this may be jumping a little bit ahead, but since we're talking numbers and, and, and statistics right now, and, uh, another question I have, it seems to me that when we talk about families falling apart, it helps to at least acknowledge that this does not just happen with families formed by adoption. Common sense might tell us that it might be more common in adoptive families, but we don't really know that. The, the foster care system is full of children, and the streets and homeless shelters have more than their share of a few, than a, of a few teens. So how common is it sure. for biological families to and want to find a place for different? That's, that's always been my question. Right, because people started to name these kids uh, from adoptive homes in a different way than uh, than they would a biological child 
who basically is no longer wanted and then goes off to to who knows where, you know, with friends and they become homeless and so on. Well, uh, we, I'm, yeah, I'm we just going to say I'm not really sure know. that sometimes these children are no longer wanted. I, I think that sometimes what we really see are parents who have just truly reached the end of what they think they can handle, and and sometimes they're doing it because they need to protect you know, regardless of how the child enters the family, they feel like they're doing it to protect either their own sanity or their safety of their other children. So, nonetheless, the problem, right. the problem is that families really don't have good information about services that are available that could be of help. Uh, we're gonna, I'm a we're gonna strong move to advocate that. of post-adoption services, which many p- families don't really have any information about. Well, and then we're going to certainly talk about that. You are... You're certainly preaching to the choir here with us, since that's what we do, <laughs> creating a family. But nonetheless, I totally agree with you. All right, so... But anyway, um, you know, there's a tendency to exaggerate. Uh, we hear of a terrible case of dissolution, and there's an exaggeration. We focus on the bad. We do this in so many situations instead of realizing that we're talking about a tiny, 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 tiny percent. You know, it's funny because I was interviewed uh, after the fact by NBC News, and and at some point in the conversation, the interviewer was asking me, not on, on air, this is off air, and given my responses, I don't think they were particularly interested in having me on air, but um, the uh the uh she was uh, immediately moving into can you suggest legislation what can we do to prevent this problem and i kept coming back oh. to the fact of we don't really know how big a problem and she was saying we know it's a huge problem it's a big problem and i said but how do we know that you know, no, we don't. <laughs> you know? uh yeah exactly and so i i i agree with you can we make a guess as to what type of adoptions are more likely to dissolve. And when I say type of adoption, let's narrow it down between uh, domestic newborn, uh, uh, adopting from foster care, and and, and feel free to break it down by age of child uh, as well, or international adoption. Do we have any data? Is there any researchers out there that have done any attempt to assess that? Uh, Well, not by the kind of adoption, but certainly... Uh, we do have a general sense, to the extent that we have any data available, that older kids uh, are more likely to, the rate of dissolution increased with the age of the child at adoption. And, and that does make common, common And has been more common for some reason, at least according to one study among males and among non-Hispanic kids. Uh, but you know, uh, also uh, the the major problem is that families who don't know or have lack of information about where to go for services. Uh, and I think as, another big problem is pre-adoption education. Yeah, how, how good okay. that is, how well prepared the families are. Absolutely, and, the preparation not only of the family but of the child. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, unless it's an infant, but uh, most often these kids are are older. So, mm-hmm. uh, but so age is a big uh, factor, and uh, I would say age is a huge one. And what happened to them before they got to you? How much trauma they had? 
Well, that is related to yeah. age, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. How much baggage? It went possible. How much emotional have... baggage they they come with. Mm-hmm. Right. Before we move to talking specifically about causes, which we're going there, uh, I thought I would ask uh, Steve. You've done a number of dissolutions, and I realize that this is not a scientific uh, survey, but you certainly have done a number. And uh, Regina, you have also worked with many families uh, in either the process or are considering it. Can either of you, and I'll start with you, Steve, uh, anecdotally say which families that you have seen more at risk for dissolving their adoption by type of adoption? Clearly, uh, from what uh, uh, Trudy has just said, we know that we have older children uh, are at uh, children adopted at an older age are at an increased risk. So, Steve, yeah. any thoughts on what you've said? This is yes, this is anecdotal, but we've had approximately seventy-five dissolution matters come to our attention over the last four to four and a half years. In that group, definitely, uh, as Trudy stated, age is significant. So, the families that adopt older children, I think, are at greater risk. Uh, certainly, international adoptions. Uh, of older children would probably be in my top category for uh, being risk at risk for dissolution. Also, uh, older kids out of foster care, but if I'm to be really precise, if the family has had experience with the child in foster care for a period of time, that family would be at lower risk than if it's a foster care placement where the new family that is adopting is not the family that had the child in foster care for a period of time. In addition, I would say that infant domestic adoptions would be at the lowest risk level from what we have seen. Purely anecdotal, I'm not uh, I, I don't Steve. have stats like Judy does. Steve, <laughs> let me just let me let me just add w- one quick um thing. When you say from foster, if they're foster care, they're less likely. And the reason for that is that if the child has been in foster care with a family and things begin to sour in some way, uh, that family will disrupt the placement. So it occurs prior to the final adoption. That, and, that's correct. And and that would be the reason that one is less likely to see that uh, at the point of a dissolution. That's true. And, and they also have had experience with the child, so they know what they can accept in terms of mm-hmm. the child's behavior. Absolutely. That um, is the fundamental difference I see uh, in, uh, in in our community uh, is the uh, for for international adoptions parents have less information they also have they don't have that 6 month period most of the time they do not have that 6 month period where the child is living in their home and they're getting regular support from uh caseworkers or whatever and so that they can make the decision before an adoption becomes finalized uh and as you say I we're not really talking about disruptions but they could disrupt at that per- that point and it would never have gone down as a an official adoption uh Regina I think that was the point you made on uh one of my recent blogs when we've been talking about that is that in your experience what do you see as far as types of adoptions that are more likely to uh dissolve 
Well, we're kind of, I think we're kind of at the other end because we're providing services for families that are working very hard to keep the kids together in the family. Right. Um, yeah, but don't you also see families who have well, are coming in but have most, just really reached? Yes, but mostly I think the dissolution children we've worked with are in their second family, and the second family is bringing them in for services. Okay, the Ivan, gotcha. that's okay. The, most, the most common we see. Um, certainly some families um, that we work with, it's not safe to keep the child at home anymore, et cetera. Um, and if a child has to be moved, it's just like it needs to be done in a way that everyone's safe, you know, mm-hmm. like working yeah. with social services or or whatever. Um, okay. But, no, I would say we don't have a lot of adoption dissolutions at our office. We have a few every year. Um, and they're Those that are seeking help. Right. I wanted to – can I Go butt ahead. in for a second, sure. Mrs. Trudy? Uh, sure. I wanted to make one kind of – one thought about the issue of age at adoption. Um, if – it's not altogether clear – from some of the literature I've seen, uh, the point of dissolution is when they're older. But whether they were adopted older or whether they were adopted somewhat younger, but then when the child gets to be a teenager, things begin to uh, get difficult for the family to handle. So some of it could be older adoptions and some of it could be adoptions that really occurred earlier, but now the child is older within the adoption. I don't know whether I'm being right. clear here. No, no you you are. And, you know, that raises an interesting question that I hadn't. Uh, is there Are there any, is there any information, are there any data that would, uh, is there kind of a, a a crucial period of time that that families, if they make it past that period of time, um, are less likely to dissolve? Are we seeing are we seeing adoptions dissolve within the first couple of years when the families truly just they didn't know what they were getting into? And we're going to move to that discussion here in just one second as to how that could happen. But anyway, if they didn't know what they were getting into and quickly realized, or how often are it cases where we see families? That further down the line, they just get fed up and get and and well, I shouldn't say it that way because that's uh, they just reach the point after they've had the child and have been struggling with the child for many years. Um, I'm not sure there was actually a question in that. I meant for there to be. Um, uh, Trudy, I'm going to direct that one to you. I don't know what the question is. <laughs> well, that's fair. <laughs> that's actually quite I, I fair. Can add, I can I, add I something think, on that if you wish. Yeah. Uh, we've sure. occasionally we've had cases where a couple has say returned from China and understands that adoption was not for them, but didn't know it until they had gone through the process. That's pretty rare. The cases that we see tend to be cases where the families have made a pretty good effort to integrate the child in the family, and the family has become dysfunctional. Normally, there are other kids in the family. That's often a, a motive for uh, attempting a dissolution because the child has that that is the subject of the dissolution has perhaps sexually assaulted physically assaulted or done something to harm uh, the other children in the family so they reach a point where they have to make a decision as to whether they're going to try and keep this one kid in the family that is probably causing dysfunctionality and 
probably harming the other kids, perhaps physically, perhaps sexually, uh, or they're going to let that child go and preserve the other children in the family. So we see quite a few cases where there's been a long-term effort to have this child succeed in the family, and they finally decide that they can't do it anymore. Oftentimes they do it because of risk to themselves or risk to the other children in the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. That we see yeah, that. I, I don't think people do this lightly. I don't think people like adopt and then just say, "Oh, I'm tired of this." But uh, there's very serious reasons why people decide to dissolve an adoption. That's right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, the the it's question very you, you painful. It's very yeah. painful when it doesn't work out. It's very very painful for everybody involved. Yes, absolutely. Because parents feel like such complete failures and and these are good people for the most part who went into it with the best of intentions and and so feel do cash like workers if they're working with the family they feel like failures also very good point yes um and so I, from what i my question which was ill ill phrased was is there do we see dissolutions more often within the first year or two after the adoption, or do we see dissolutions after a number of years into the adoption when either the child has gotten older and harder to handle or the parents have exhausted themselves physically or financially? Uh, that was that was the, the, my question, and I'm not sure there's data on that. No, um, Steve's given us an idea on what he sees. Um, Trudy, any thoughts on any data that you've seen? I, I, don't, I don't know of any data on that. I, I, yeah. The only thing I know is that uh, with the age of the child, you see more dis, the rate of dissolution increases. Yeah. All so, right. So, and that's age of the child at adoption. So, you, if you have a younger child, the rate is much lower than if you have a teenager who is being adopted. That kind of that's, thing. Yeah, that makes sense. But that that's the extent of our limited knowledge. You are listening to Creating a Family. Uh we are today we are talking about adoption dissolutions, how common, what are the causes and how to prevent. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can connect with me personally at Dawn Davenport 1 or you can connect with us at Creating a Family. Uh, on Facebook, there are three ways you can connect with us. One, dawn.davenport1, or you can like our Facebook page, Creating a Family, or you can join the Creating a Family Facebook support group. You can find either the page or the support group by typing in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box. You can like the group and like the page and join the group, and we would love to have you with us. Um, so that's actually a good segue into talking about ways, uh, uh, causes, and ways to prevent. Uh, because certainly one of the things that we have seen is pre-adoption education and uh, post-adoption education, which is the mission of creating a family, um, as well as support, which you know leads us to support groups and things such as that. So I, I do see certain, and, and I speak from somebody who spends most of my time working on pre- and post-adoption education, but I do see some problems with pre-adoption education. It's it's hard to get people, number one, sometimes people aren't exposed which is and aren't aware of that education is out there, which is mind-boggling considering how much is available. But also it, it seems, is is it that issue as much or is it the issue that, 
they just don't hear, they can't imagine themselves in this difficulty or in this situation. Regina, is it the lack of availability or the lack of ability to understand what's being presented pre-adoption? I think both. I don't think people yeah. understand um, how seriously children can be, how disturbed some children can be and how they can, you you know, ruin your family. Um, but also a yeah. lot of parents resent having to go to education they're you know i'm a, i'm a good parent this is silly why are you doing this you know you're just trying to scare us off um and oftentimes when i work for uh, i work for an agency that plays children from foster care at one point and we would have a family that had an adoption disruption at the education meetings because it's very easy to blame those families but when you actually see them and hear their story they're just people like everybody else <laughs> that is so true the best they could. Um, but I think there's a lot of denial in the adoption community as well. Like, well, if we tell people the truth, that nobody will adopt. Um, you know, there's sort of this mystique that if you go overseas, you won't have any problems. Those kids from foster care have problems, but the kids internationally don't have problems. Um, you know, that's not true. I don't think the agencies say that, but there is kind of that mystique. Well, so, I, I think that there are certainly... Different agencies approach education in different ways. Some mm-hmm. truly embrace it, and uh, others do not. <laughs> I've wondered if the reason, if one of the reasons that we that that oftentimes families are, I think, better prepared for foster care adoption, although we've acknowledged that we don't know whether their dissolutions are more common there or not, or less common there. Uh, but one of the reasons might be, I mean, the the twelve week or however many hour right. programs are are pretty exhaustive. Uh, um, you certainly get a good education uh, adopting from foster care, right. and not all international adoption agencies have gone that far. Right, um, and they're spread out. You're, you may be in Ohio, and your adoption agency may be in Texas, and so your education is, you know, go to a few websites and read these articles. Yeah, now that's a good point, too. Yeah. One thing, yeah. Don, that uh, you might be interested in knowing, several years ago in Wisconsin there was discussion of this dissolution problem, and certainly we agree, I agree with everything that Regina has said there, lack of education and people don't understand children and the impact they're going to have on themselves and their families. Wisconsin did uh, mandate a certain number of hours of education pre-adoption or pre-placement uh, that has pros and cons. The people do resent having to take that type of course when people that can give birth naturally uh, don't have to have any screening or uh, approval. But uh, the idea of training these people, giving them some idea of the problems they may face, particularly with international adoption, I think is a good idea. Uh, I'm not sure that there's there's no way to prove whether the Adoption of the legislation has succeeded in having a better educated set of adopting parents, but it certainly can't hurt. I do like her idea of bringing in somebody that has been involved in a disruption to present on that topic to a group of prospective adoptive parents. But we're talking also about the problem, but we hopefully we'll get to some cures, and I'm not sure there's a total cure here, but there could be legislated, mandatory education, which might be helpful. I think many states don't have any mandated education. 
Well, no, you don't mean from foster care, do you? Are you speaking of international? Because well, all state for the I'm, most part. I'm talking about uh, initial adoption, not so much from foster care, because they have to go through a certain amount of training, right. and then they get on on the job experience there. So they don't need quite the same level uh, as somebody that's adopting internationally, where you're getting a child where you have limited information about their background. With a foster care adoption, you're, you have more information about the child's mm-hmm. baggage than you right. do with an international adoption. You absolutely do. Yeah, I um, I, I think you're right. Go ahead. Well, I think parents that. tend to think like if you were adopting from foster care, and I said this child has had been sexually abused and her, their mother is mentally ill, then you can decide if you want to parent that child. If you get a child internationally, you may not know that, so you assume it's not true. But that doesn't mean that the mother's not mentally ill or that the child wasn't sexually abused or the mother didn't use drugs or alcohol during pregnancy. I Um, I have a question that we have seen, and again, this would be anecdotal, um, but it seems to me of the families who are dissolving their adoptions, they are often reporting that their child has acted out sexually. And one would assume that that is a result of having been sexually abused. Um, again, I don't know if there's any research on this. Trudy, is there? And if not, I'm just wondering if other people have heard this anecdotally as well. But we'll start, Trudy, with what we actually know. <laughs> uh, I don't. I mean, there are no data on that. But yeah. when you get through with your question, I want to go back because on one thing, because I've just finished a study where we compared foster care with international on Mm. the use of post-adoption services. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'm moving to post-adoption in just a minute. Let me just get there, but go ahead with your question first. Okay. Um, Steve, do you find that that is this just something that, are are people just using this as their their main reason, but that there's other, how how often is sexual uh, abuse or, or kids acting out sexually, usually against another child, a factor in families that you see who dissolve? We've seen it as a factor in some cases. I don't think it's uh, an overwhelming factor in terms of numbers of cases that we've had, but it it has been an issue. What we've seen there, uh, we've had uh, within the last couple of years two or three cases where we've had two kids adopted either at once or not too far apart where they're of different sexes. And you get a 14-year-old, boy and a 12-year-old girl, they're sexual acting out, and the case ends up going through some sort of child in in need of protective services system with a juvenile criminal component. Uh, Those cases end up sometimes with a split of those kids uh, in order to protect the victim of the sexual assault. So we do see that as uh, a part of a dissolved adoption occasionally. Mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't say that's something that we've seen in large numbers. Okay. All right. So we we I think we all would agree that pre-adoption education is important. And I was thankful that, that Regina pointed out that one of the issues that that complicates it is that we have placing adoption agencies in one state, working with families in another state, which would require that the home study and the actual uh, social worker working with the family is is not directly connected with the placing agency, and although it 
it, there are agencies who do it well, it still complicates things. Um, so we've got that issue, uh, and and we have a reliance uh, upon uh, online education. Although I. Uh, and I don't mean this defensively because I am a big believer in it, both in person and online. I think that both can be used beautifully together. Uh, we we have online education, but we strongly encourage agencies to use it in conjunction with social workers working directly with the family in the home study process to uh, talk about the realities as well as to do group trainings and every every way that we can figure out to get information to families. Uh, there isn't just one perfect way. I mean, that's from where we come from. Um, but another component to this from the prevention standpoint is the uh, what uh, we've all mentioned here uh, briefly is the post-adoption education. And, and although I don't think that we're great at all on pre-adoption education, I think we really as a field fall down on the post-adoption education uh, and support. I would add, I would throw support in. So, Trudy, would you tell us about your research that you were talking about on, I think you mentioned it was post-adoption education from foster care versus international. Uh, yeah, it's it's something we're just finishing up on uh, and haven't uh, completed yet. But uh, there is a national survey of adoptive parents. It was the first national survey that's been done it's part of the CDC health survey mm -hmm. and they interviewed anyone that they found in the health survey who had an adopted child that's basically it and we've uh, looked at that data and we have simply we were interested in the use of post-adoption services and uh, and comparing international adoptive parents with foster parents, but we split that up because there are kinship foster parents and non-kin, uh, because those are ve two very different groups when one talks about foster care. The, uh, but just to make a story very short, the uh, it's interesting that the international uh, families were very interested and were more likely, for instance, to indicate that they had discussed post-adoption services with uh, whoever their provider was than was true of foster care non-kin families, uh, whereas the foster care kin families didn't discuss anything at all. Uh, with respect to post-adoption services. So you get a, I mean, we broke down all of the different kinds of post-adoption services, too complicated to talk about here. But there are differences. The international, we have to remember that by and large, on average, the international uh, adoptive parents are socioeconomically much better off than our foster parents. There's a huge economic yeah. divide between the two. Uh, so they have much more access to private uh, kinds of services than is the case for foster parents. I just want to throw that in so we recognize that, that issue because it does affect various kinds of both preventive and post-adoption service use. 
It's it's a very it's a very valid point. Mm-hmm. What type of post adoption in our experience if if once parents reach the point where they have given up, they are hard to help. Um if they if we can uh, educate continue to educate them and support them, so, you know, in, in immediately after adoption, they are they are they're much easier to help. They're still at the point where they're they're able to to keep trying. So what type what ways what type of post-adoption support is available uh, uh, for families? Steve, do you have some ideas on, on what what is available currently for families, regardless of the way they adopt? No, not a lot, in my opinion. <clears throat> Number one, there are not a lot of therapists that are well-trained to deal with this issue. There are some. Uh, I think that uh, respite care uh, is very difficult to get for people that are having trouble and might be able to, with the help of therapy, with the help of respite care, be able to make their adoption successful. Respite care is difficult to get, uh, difficult to identify respite care providers in many communities. Um, those things would certainly, I think, help uh, families that are experiencing difficulty to begin with. Adoption agencies, once they make a placement, uh, and I represent several agencies, and the agencies I represent are caring people, but they don't have quite the same interest or stake in providing those post-adopting adoption services. They've been paid for the work that they've done through the adoption. Post-adoption, there is no uh, reward or compensation for providing services at that point, and couples are sometimes reluctant to go back to the agency where they've had a failed placement, in part because they may be angry with the agency. It's hard to accept the fact that this adoption, if you're a family, isn't working out. You begin to feel like a failure. You may not want to go back to your caseworker and deal with the caseworker, or you may feel that the agency didn't give you sufficient background information about the child when you made your adoption decision. So you're angry with them, and you don't want to go back there, too. It's a real problem. I'd be interested in the comments of Regina and Trudy on on other forms of once you're in trouble, uh, what sort of relief can you get or expect to get? Trudy, I mean, not Trudy, I'm sorry. Uh, Regina, what do you think? Well, in Ohio, we have a program, a post-adoption program, that helps families access some money, international families as well as domestic adoptions for services, um, that's very helpful because it takes some of the stress off the family. Um, I think oftentimes families have said they have gone back to their agency and the response has been, well, you're the only family we ever had that had a problem, which mm-hmm. you know is not true and just isolates people further. Um, I remember one one mom who her daughter was from China and there was this myth going around that if you adopt it from China, the children have no problems. And when she went back to the agency, I mean, she went to a party or something, and people came up to her and said, oh, you're the one that's having problems. Like, she was the only person that ever had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think it's very stigmatizing, whereas as if you adopt from foster care and you call the agency back and say, I'm having problems, workers are more likely to say, well, you know, that's to be expected. How can we help you? And I mm-hmm. think um, there's a mystique about respite care, too, Um it's really, you know, if you can find somebody to, 
you want the child to be safe for the weekend. They don't have to be therapeutic unless, you know, they have to be able to take care of that child's needs, whatever that is. But you don't have to have Mary Poppins. You need to have somebody who's going to keep the child safe, and they're not going to fix your child in a respite. Um, we often suggest people go to colleges, um, find graduate students who are studying social work or, or, or some kind of, you have some kind of training, and um, find somebody there. Just to give you, and, and, and let me make the distinction where both uh, Steve and Regina have just mentioned respite care, which is um, by definition usually short-term versus right. residential treatment. And certainly another uh, frustrating thing for families who feel like their children need a lot more uh, structure and a lot more therapy than can be had within a family unit and they're seeking out residential treatment um, is the overwhelming cost. Uh, right. Regina, is, yep. I mean, families, how do they access? And, and That's why yeah. a number of varieties of families, when there is some kind of difficulty that they can't handle, place the child back in foster care, mm-hmm. even though they still are interested in that child. So simply a placement in foster care of an adopted child, which sometimes is regarded as a dissolution, is not one. Because most of those families really expect to have their child back, but they need the resources of some kind of a treatment center, which they cannot afford, particularly if the child is from foster care, because those families are a very limited means. Like there's very few families that could afford it. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me yet, let me mention one other thing that uh, Steve said something that ticked off my in my mind. Uh, one of the things that really is needed is to educate workers to make sure that every or whoever the family or and attorneys, for instance, to Educate everybody so that they are sure to tell and inform a family who is about to adopt where that family could go if needed so that everybody has some place. Now, the trick here is that there is always the concern that if you do that, are you saying that my child is going to have trouble? kind of reaction. And this is the problem for caseworkers because on the one hand, they should be giving sufficient information to the family about the child's background and all of that. And that is in conflict with hoping this family will adopt. And you get this tension between those two things that need to happen, which is a, a a natural difficulty because you're hoping the family will adopt the child so you don't want to give too much information but you better give the information otherwise they're not prepared right so but families really do need some information of where they can go and every city has places where they can go in case there's a problem, and it isn't necessarily to the they're back to their own caseworker. Uh, we, for instance, you know, have a number of agencies that are there to serve families post adoption. Uh, but you know, New York is big. 
but other places, uh, I'm sure, have other places that families can go at least for some contact with somebody. Steve, let me ask you a question about the uh, families who either adopt from foster care or have adopted internationally who need to get their child uh, more therapy than they are able to afford, and often it comes up in the context of residential-type treatment. The child has either been there, they've run out of money, or they, they even don't have the money to, you know, to, to continue. What options do they have on getting this uh, type of treatment covered by the government or by insurance. Trudy mentioned going back into foster care, but that's fairly problematic, isn't it? No, it happens a lot. It, it does happen, and I think Trudy's other point about the fact that you have in international adoption families that are normally better off than families that adopt through foster care is significant because with some of the international adoption problems that we faced, we can send them to uh, specialists. Uh, there's one not far from my office in Wisconsin where they specialize in dealing with uh, kids like this, and they can afford to pay $30,000 a month or whatever it might cost to take care of these, these children. Uh, that's not the case with the foster care placements. They don't have good resources to rely on to take care of treatment needs. People should not ignore, if it's a school-age child, the fact that there's, there's an, uh, the schools have an obligation to provide an education for kids. So a school district may contribute, for example, to the treatment expense when there's an educational component to the treatment expense. So a family can go back to the school district where the child is probably in a special program of some kind and maybe not functioning well there because of behavioral issues and ask for and get a contribution to that residential treatment program, at least that portion of the program that's uh, identified with an educational component. But there, there isn't sometimes a health insurance plan will take you just so far as a family in terms of mental health treatment, and then you're done. Uh, and so you've identified what I think is a significant problem in terms of helping the families that have uh, dysfunctionality in a child that may be on the verge of a dissolution. Is there a way to uh, – one of the things that we hear is that for families, and I think this happens more often with families who have not adopted from foster care, they are – needing help with the child. They either want to dissolve uh, the adoption or they want to turn the child back into foster care to get help uh, for the child. Um, but the problem is foster care will, or, or the state, uh, Child Protective Services, uh, we are told will often tell them that they have to, uh, they could be charged with child abandonment or neglect. And they would, although they, whether they would be prosecuted would be one issue, but they would certainly have it on their record. And then the fear comes in, will they be allowed to keep either their other adopted or other biological children? Is this, Steve, a, a real concern for families? Yes. You've identified one of the reasons why families are reluctant to go back to the foster care system for assistance. Exactly. Uh, if they relinquish a child uh, and, and they want to have other children, but they relinquish one child that is causing a problem with the other children that they've adopted, they're concerned that they'll never again be approved for a placement. Uh, 
uh, or if they're foster parents that also have adopted a child, they're concerned that they'll lose their foster parent licensing. Uh, and it may be a family that's caring for four or five foster kids or has habitually carried for, cared for a number of foster kids. They may lose their license and they could lose the opportunity to maintain those kids in placement. And I, I'm concerned also about the kids that are in placement with that family that may now be transitioned out to another home, even though they're doing just fine in that home, especially once the child that was the real source of the problem has been moved out. Have you so the actually experienced? Have you actually experienced such? I'm concerned sure. that th- there are a lot of fears that are also quite unfounded. We have certainly heard from families. We we did a show on this uh, a year ago talking about uh, what to do when adoption dissolutions become inevitable. And there was an attorney on that show that uh, uh, specifically mentioned the issue of child abandonment charges. And so you would have that on your record, or child neglect, which potentially could influence your ability to work with other children. I don't know whether it would require any child that is legally yours in your home to be removed. But, Steve, she asks a good question. Trudy asks a good question. Is this a, is this a myth or does it actually happen? No, it happens. But let me distinguish between a family being prosecuted for neglect and a family being unable to get a license for additional foster kids or a license to allow them to adopt again. The latter is more likely to happen than the former, which would be rare in my experience, even though the child may become a part of a child in need of protective services program. And remember, in most states, too, if you can't get help anyplace else and and the child protective services people will not have you as a client, Normally, you can bring your own petition. I would caution people to be careful about doing it, but you can normally bring your own petition saying this child's out of control. Judge, social services system, I need your help. And they'll take that case under advisement and may, through the court system, direct you to resources that may help you. I we, just we, want to we make use sure that, that we're sort clear. of a last, a, a last resort, but that is yeah. a solution. And I, I want to be clear, well, uh, just to reiterate what you said, which is the – I'm summarizing, so make sure I'm summarizing correctly here, um, Steve, that, the, that the, the, the fear of being charged for abandonment or neglect is probably not that uh, – not, it's not really the reality. However, the, it, it could well be that you would not be able to adopt nor foster a child again, and that might be the more real concern. Am I summarizing you correctly? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to to make sure we we touch on that. So, yeah. what is what should a family do to legally? They've reached the point they have not gotten <laughs> either. They have gotten education and support post pre and post post adoption, and, and it just hasn't been enough, or they haven't gotten it. They haven't sought out a good therapist uh, such as Regina. Whatever the reason, or they haven't, just, they weren't successful. They are reaching the point where they say, or they have reached the point where they say, we no longer are able to parent this child. Uh, what can they legally do at that point? The news coverage uh, on the last week of uh, the, the Today Show, NBC News and Reuters, talked about families 
just finding people that happened to have found them online uh, and dropped their children off at, with these people. Um, yeah. What options? Number one, I would assume that would be illegal, but is that illegal? And, and does it matter whether the child is yours biologically? Is it legal for anybody uh, to do that for a child, Steve? I, I'd be less concerned about the issue of legality there. And yes. I, I, one of the, I'm, I'd be more concerned about uh, making sure that the child is being properly channeled to another family. And frankly, and this may surprise some people, I don't have so much of a problem with finding a new family on listserv or Craigslist. I have a problem with what happens after that contact is made. If, for example, the placement is across state lines, there should be compliance with the interstate compact for placement of children, which all states are subscribers to, and it should be done through proper channels. I personally require, if I'm going to be involved in one of these cases, that the family that's seeking to outplace have engaged the services of a therapist to help with the uh, transition, and hopefully they will have had a therapist involved well before that. Most of them have. So we want a therapist involved. Before they can drop a child off with some other family, we want that family to have been home-studied and approved by a licensed child welfare agency, and I'm talking about, or a state entity, and I'm talking about a current up-to-date home study. Right, and that's what happens when families go back to an agency and return the child to the agency. Most of those children do end up being adopted by another family that has been studied and all of that, just as Steve is saying, rather than dropping them in some kind of a free market, which I think is appalling because you don't know what is happening to those kids and they could be hurt again and uh, there's no control whatsoever instead of going to a licensed provider, some kind of a service agency that has families on board that are waiting for kids and where the children can be replaced. Or quite frankly, they may not have families on board, but they reach out and they seek. So they can find them, yes. Yeah, exactly. They're in the boat. Steve, then going back to, I'm, I'm wanting to uh, under, I want to make sure that we're... jumping in there, but... No, that's I fine. Get very, that's I, get very, I get very jumpy when I hear of uh, people running out and placing their own children on Craigslist. Right. I think that is just uh, the worst thing that could happen uh, to and, any and we child. Think it, it's, because one of the things we so want to make sure happens is both that the family that the child is going to is going to be prepared adequately to make a successful placement. We also, of course, want to make certain that they are a safe place for this child, which is what the home study process and it's, uh, will, will certainly de- determine safety and, and one would uh, hope is, is also working on preparation. And the it's child safe. has to be prepared. And then exactly, and then we also want to be working with the child to make this, this, no matter how you look at it, this transition is going to be difficult, uh, and we want to do everything within our power to support this child uh, so that they can heal from it and also that they can successfully integrate into a new family. Um, So if we've got a family that is struggling, it must they go to a, how do they access, They okay, they know that they want to, follow the process that you've just described, Steve, where we are, and, and, and Trudy and me, that we want them to uh, uh, access a, another family that has been prepared, educated, 
and that they then prepare and educate the child. How do they do this? Must they go back? Must they work with either the foster care system or an adoption agency? That would certainly be the logical way, but is that required? And, and, and what agency do they choose? Well, at some point, uh, at least in Wisconsin, if you're doing an adoption, which is what we're now talking about, we're talking about a second adoption, Yes. we require that the birth parents receive counseling. So they have to work with a, a licensed child welfare agency. Not all states have that rule. We think it's a good rule. So first, the couple that is outplacing will need to work with an agency and in effect be counseled because there are certain reports about them that have to be filed with the court in order to affect a termination of their rights so that a new family can adopt. Another agency, and it could be the same agency, will have to have done a current home study on the couple that's, or individual, that uh, is or are receiving uh, the child in question. Now, most states would require some form of court activity there, and there are various laws about replacement. Some states have no laws on the subject. Some states have, like California's got a law that allows you to consider replacement within five years. I'm not sure that's still on the books, but it was four or five years ago. States could take a look at their legislation to deal with this issue. In Wisconsin, you go back to court and you terminate the rights of the first adoption family and you uh, establish those rights with the second adoption family through a termination of parental rights and adoption. I would guess most states have a process something Some like that. Some kind of a that. TPR, yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, right. and that, so that you can normally have a... mandates now you've got at least a court, in most cases, supervising what's going to happen. Where our, our concern is, is the one that's been expressed by Trudy and Regina here, too, about people that find a match on Craigslist and just drop a kid off in a campground or at a McDonald's or something like that with a new family. Well, yeah, and that's and then there no parental rights are being terminated then, but and, and uh, so no legal adoption is going through, no home study is being required, um, no preparation for child or family is going through. So what we are, uh, I guess, in summary, saying is that uh, families need to either contact their child protective services agency in their state or. A, an adoption agency. One would assume uh, a, a good place to begin would be the adoption agency that they worked with originally. Um, but if that's not a possibility, if they approach another agency, any adoption agency, is that agency? Uh, will agencies turn them down and say, "No, look, we did not place this child. You know, we go to the state." Does that happen? Um, let's see. I don't know who to ask. Regina, do you know well, the answer to that? I'm I think sure. different agencies have different. Um, what they do. If you're an infant placing agency and somebody wants to relinquish a 10-year-old, they don't have the experience or the knowledge maybe to help you. They might refer you to somebody else, uh, you know, because different agencies have different missions. And well, they, that's a valid point. Yeah, they may everybody, doesn't do, everybody doesn't do everything. It's not, you know. But I think calling agencies to get referrals, calling, you know, a lot of you have to become a big advocate, and it's very hard when you're having so much trouble at home. You know, just finding a therapist in the white pages because he takes your medical but doesn't know anything about adoption yeah. is not. No, that's a that's exactly that's um, a whole other issue is the yeah, right. therapists who don't know really, much about attachment. 
Right. Well, let me put a plug in for a group that I'm a member of, if I can. The American mm-hmm. Academy of Adoption Attorneys, uh-huh. uh, since at least uh, probably for the last seven or eight years, has had annual programs training their lawyers on the subject of adoption, dissolution, and disruption. So if people need some direction, if they go to a lawyer that's a member of the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys, that lawyer should have had training to some degree in adoption dissolution and hopefully would be in a decent position to make a referral to an agency that could be of assistance and know the therapists that have the qualifications to provide services in a dissolution situation. So. I, I would highly recommend, they've got a website, uh, adoptionattorneys.org, I think. Uh, if people yeah, are facing yeah. that problem, go there, and you can at least find a lawyer in your state that has some background in this field. We yeah, or, or an agency like we have, like uh, COAC, the Council on Adoptable Children. They do not do adoptions, but they certainly work with yeah. adoptive families and know who it is that people can go to or where they can go and so on. And there are are a variety of agencies like that. Who will be able to help you. Well, we have reached the end of our time. Unfortunately, this is certainly a topic that can demand a lot more attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Trudy Festinger, Steve Hayes, and Regina Kupecki, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank two more gold sponsors and remind you that it is through their generous support that we are able to bring you this show. And these sponsors would include Children's Connection, an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and adoption programs throughout the world, as well as a domestic infant program and their embryo uh, adoption program. So if you want more information, and I, first of all, if you want to participate in the discussion on the topic of this show, please check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information on any of our guests today, uh, to get more information on Steve Hayes, I should start with that one, you can go to his website, which is ghnlawyers.com, and that is ghn, that would be like go hand no, G-H-N, lawyers.com. To get more information on Regina Kupecki, you can go to her website, or the website of, of the uh, therapist that she works with, is abcofohio.net, all one word, abcofohio.net. And to read some of Dr. Festinger's uh, research, the best way is to go to childwelfare.gov, the Child Information Gateway, uh, which is the wonderful website that we link to uh, frequently and refer people to. They just uh, uh, type in adoption, dissolutions, and disruptions, either one, because her research is on both. And uh, you will see her research, and you, they link off of it to summaries of her research, which uh, which we recommend. Uh, the UN estimates there are millions of orphans in the world, including 104,000 currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. These kids, as well as the millions of older kids throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about U.S. children waiting for a family, you can go to the adoption resources uh, at creatingafamily.org org and click on waiting children and you will be able to find them there thanks for joining us today and i will see you next week
Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.